Well, good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn. And today I want to speak a little bit about uh, the subject of facing opposition. We're going to pick up with Acts 19 in just a minute. But within the life of an individual, a Christian, in the life of the church, we will face much opposition. Uh, it's, it's happened in this church here at Sojourn over the last years, since the year 2000. We found in 2006, we started a music venue because we saw that it was an opportunity for us to be able to build up the city, to be able to flourish with the city and support the arts and music culture here in the city. I was excited as personally as a musician who's recorded CDs, and uh, you can pick those up at the book table after the service. Uh, but I was very excited because it was a chance to even bring up friends from Nashville. It wasn't a Christian artist-only place, but it was a place for us just to love on musicians. It really was started doing really well, and it was a great place to play in the city. But a news weekly called The Leo did a story on it, and they published it. And it was very argumentative. It, it, it said we had false motives in starting this uh, music venue. And because of the opposition we faced after that, uh, it shut down over the next few years. And it was a very sad story. Uh, Pastor Mike Cosper does a, a podcast on that through his Harbor Media. So you can check that out online. But we faced opposition with that. I faced personal opposition as a, as a pastor here at Sojourn with, and, and the other pastors here through teachers who have promoted false doctrine to come into the church. And, and they're just people like me and you, but maybe they, they hold to a heresy and they come and they try to get involved with the community group and start with some false teaching. I've had to sit with people over the years and ask them not to come back to sojourn. And those are always really fun conversations, but that's part of what we do here to protect the church as well. I've had emails, conversations, showed up at people's doors, faced opposition. And for some of you, I'm the nicest guy you've never met, if you've never met me. And I, I sincerely, I hate opposition, I hate confrontation, but it's part of the Christian life. This week, we're gonna find the Apostle Paul and the Christians in Ephesus facing major opposition. We went out of order a few weeks as we had some guest preachers. Two weeks ago, Jonathan Pennington taught on Acts 18. Last week, Dave Harvey was here preaching on Acts 17 with Paul at Mars Hill. And today we're back to Acts 19, so we're moving straight ahead. Now, as we look at opposition here this morning, I want us to look through two specific lenses as we look. The first one is this, that opposition we face should not be primarily viewed through the lens of me or you as an individual. If we look at ourselves and say, why must I face opposition? I think we're starting with the wrong foundation. I think the, the best place to start, and the scriptures teach the best place to start is to look at why does God's kingdom face opposition? And then we can look at the particular part that we play. So not me, but God's kingdom facing opposition. And secondly, we want to remember that the opposition we face is not easily discernible and it's not simplistic. It comes from a variety of sources, and we'll look at that in just a minute. The same church, Ephesus, where Paul is, we find today, he writes later in Ephesians chapter six, he says this to the Christians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And I have a diagram for you to see, to see about, as we look at the scriptures as a whole, 
we see that there are three main oppositional forces against God's kingdom. And all of these three play a part. And it's not that we can splice them. Oh, this is the satanic realm or, oh, this is my flesh. But they all work in coordination. I'd like to start on the bottom left. The flesh is us as individuals. We have a sinful nature. We're sinful by nature and we're sinful by choice. And if that's all there was, we'd have major opposition because we have all of this going inside us. We see that Paul in Romans 7 talking about what he longs to do, he doesn't do, and what he doesn't want to do, he does. And then we move up to the world, corporate flesh. In 1 John, he says, these are the cravings for physical pleasure that the world offers us. The cravings for everything we see, this covetousness, and also pride in our own achievements and possessions. So it sets forth the tone of the nature. It looks different in different times and different places, but it's the same foundation, this corporate flesh that we have. And then the satanic realm, the demonic forces we just read about, and we'll talk a little bit about that more in just a moment, is another force that we face, Satan and the demons, the fallen angels who are against and opposed to God's kingdom. And as we walk through the stories of Acts 19, we're gonna look at a couple different scenes. We wanna remember what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Listen to this. He says, I've said all these things to you. He's talking to these guys he loves dearly, that in, in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have distress. You will have sorrow. You will have opposition. He says this, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So with this in mind, let's jump into our outline. And there's a lot of text to read, so I'm not going to have you stand. I could have you stand the whole sermon uh, because we're going to be reading a lot of text. But we're going to look at obedience. Then we're going to look at Overconfidence, what I'd say is I had to keep it all in O's. So it's really self-confidence, confidence in self versus confidence in God. And then the final point is opposition, opposition. So let's look at obedience. This is the first scene. We're gonna see Paul doing some extraordinary things in the sons of Sceva. Verse nine, we pick up in Acts chapter 19, it says, but some of them became obstinate, the people who were against Paul. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. So the first thing I wanna see here is that Paul is acting in obedience. He's taking the message of the gospel to unreached people groups all over. In Ephesus, where he's preaching right now, there's two main sources for financial prosperity in the city. One is trade, and the other is affiliated with this being the hub of the temple of the goddess Artemis. And it's one of the, this temple in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was amazing. People came from all over to buy, to worship. It was, it was a huge source of trade. And Trade was declining in that day because of silt overrunning into the hub there. And so ships couldn't come in. And, and so really the worship of Artemis was the main, main facility of, of prosperity for the city. And the people of Ephesus, we see in this text and through ancient historical records that they were very interested in sorcery and magic. We're gonna see some of that in the text. Uh, they had the earliest version of Harry Potter, so they were very fired up about that. Just kidding about that. But we see the first thing Paul in this, in this scene is he's doing extraordinary miracles. And the first thing I say is, aren't all miracles extraordinary? 
And by definition, Wayne Grudem says this, a miracle is a less common kind of activity in which God arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. So these things are taking place, but these aren't just miracles, which by definition are not very common. These are extraordinary miracles. So that even handkerchiefs, aprons, these very work clothes, a handkerchief that he may have wiped his sweat on or somebody else, Paul touches them and they're taken to sick people. And you might ask, what in the world is going on here? And I always look at the lens of the scripture through this lens. I look through, Lord, what are you doing here? What's your heart? Because the story of scripture is about God and his heart and his desires. And I believe God is combating the magicians and the, the sorcery of Ephesus and saying, you think that's, that's amazing. Look at this. Look what I do. And throughout the scope of the scriptures, we see that there are heightened manifestations of miracles as God is giving new revelation. We see it with Moses. We see it with Jesus. We see it with Peter and Paul that God gives an extra special manifestation of these miraculous things to say, hey, this is my servant. Listen to him. Look at what he's doing. And so this amazing stuff is taking place. And as this has taken place, we see people in Ephesus are seeing it and they're going, I think I want to add that to my repertoire. And you can imagine if you were practicing magical arts of divination, you were a sorcerer, whatever it may be, a wizard, you would want to say, man, I, I want to do that because that's going to prop up my business. And so we see Paul's obedience leads others to overconfidence or confidence in self. And that leads us to our second point. Acts 19, verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And now this is a fascinating scene. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That probably wasn't too good for their business right there. We can quickly read over that story in the ESV. I, th I like the translation. It says, then some itinerant Jewish exorcists. So this is one of their businesses. This is, this is their way of, of making a living. They see Paul doing these amazing things. He's like, man, I'm gonna take this name of Jesus and add it to my bag of tricks here. And I'm gonna go out and cast some, some demons out. So they go and they try to invoke this name of Jesus who they don't know. And, and the demon says, I know Paul, I know Jesus. I know the power, but you guys don't, don't have any power. And so this, this demon, demonically possessed man comes and he beats them down and they run out bleeding and just, just bewildered. We could spend all day talking about Satan and demons and they are a real opposing force, but I wanna make a few points about it and just invite you to study on your own some if, if, uh, if this tweaks your, your interest. When we consider the satanic forces, let's remember a few things. The first thing is that the scriptures teach us that Satan and the demons, they're fallen angels and they are created forces. And a lot of times you may hear people speak like it's God against Satan and I'm not sure who's gonna win. And it'd be like going to the NFL game and saying, I want this NFL team to play against this caterpillar and who's gonna win? I think the caterpillar may win. It's not even a comparison. 
Because God, the sovereign ruler, has created all things, is over all things, is all powerful, all knowing. And one pastor put it like this, Satan, I don't treat him as anything other than a dog on a chain. A dog is very, if it's a rabid dog, it can be very dangerous, but he has its limitations, has its power. In the end, he's gonna be cast away. But for now, he has power, but it is a limited power. We see it as, as Satan has to approach God to say, I wanna, I wanna do this to Job. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Satan's main tool is lying. He desires to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does it subversively in our culture and other cultures we see in our missionary friends in uh, Africa and beyond that the demonic forces are more manifested there. But here it's more subversive. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote this, the Screwtape Letters, and it's a fictional work. So if you're going for doctrine, don't, don't jump to this. You can go to systematic theology or something else. But this is a fictional work he wrote uh, depicting two, a conversation between two demons. And he has a Uncle Screwtape and nephew Wormwood. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes at the very beginning. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall in about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And that really is where modern America and the Western culture is. It's like, that's so antiquated. Demonic forces, come on, seriously. So the first extreme is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And we see that in other parts of the world and even in the States. I've counseled people over the years who get involved with the occult and start dabbling. It starts with interest and they dive fully in. And the truth is the demonic world only desires to destroy. It desires to oppose, it desires to hurt. And so we wanna stay far away from dabbling in those things. We learn from Paul's life and letters, he wasn't overly fascinated with the demonic realm, with satanic works. He talks about it a lot. But we see when he enters into a city, he doesn't go and try to find the main demon there and cast him out. He goes proclaiming the gospel. He tells the people, be rooted in God's love. Stand firm against the works of the devil. We see with John, he says, be in the world, but not of the world. And we see that whether we're facing the flesh, the world, or demonic forces, we are seeing that God's call for us is to love him more, to know him more, to be rooted and grounded in the scriptures. And as we do that, we will be able to stand firm. And so we see the, the first movement of Paul with obedience. And then we see this overconfidence or self-confidence, trust in self. And then we jump back to obedience. This story spreads throughout the region about the sons of Sceva. And I find it amazing what God does through this as the demon beats them down. In verse 17, it says this, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So what's God do through this? He's like, I'm gonna make much of my name. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So this movement, they hear about the sons of Sceva. They hear about the power of the name of Jesus. They see what Paul has done. And what do they do? They, they respond. And these are believers here that the scripture is is talking about, that those who were hiding still, they, they, they thought they could take Jesus into their lives and keep their old ways. But as they see this, they say, man, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cleanse myself of these things. 
50,000 drachmas, 50,000 pieces of silver, whatever your translation says. It's basically 50,000 units of a day's wage. And if you put that in modern American uh, dollars, it'd be about 10, 11 million dollars worth of stuff is burned at this bonfire. So you see all of this coming place. This is people confessing publicly that they were hiding things. And they said, I don't want this in my life. And if you see Paul's message, once again, let's not be mistaken. He's not going around saying, hey, burn this, burn that. He's saying, Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. He loves you more than you could dream or imagine. His love, the wideness, the depth of it, it is, is greater than you could dream or imagine. And as people are captured by the love of Jesus, they say, I don't want to do the things I did once. I want to get this stuff out of my life. And stuff can incipiently come into our lives when we start with just dabbling in a few things. And I'm not going to tell you what to burn here today. Back in my tradition, it was a legalistic tradition. We would literally go out to campfires and burn rock and roll records. And I wish I still had many of those albums here today. <laughs> but they, they would tell you, burn this, burn this, burn this. But the Lord may be sparking in your heart today through the power of his word saying, you know what? You've let things come into your life. And the Holy Spirit through whisperings, don't push those things down. If he's saying, hey, this is something you need to get out of your life. Recently, I, on my cell phone, I, I deleted a couple of apps. Uh, there's nothing wrong with these apps, but I, I got a little too into uh, Angry Birds and this Blossom game. And I found myself like going to it over and over again. Nothing evil about those things. But I found that I was going to those things. Like I'd be sitting with my kids. I'd be like, oh. I'd be waking up in the morning. It's like, man, I'm going to try to beat this level. And the Spirit has done this many times in my life. It's like, Chad, you don't need those right now. So it's like, man, if I, del if I delete this, it's going to erase all the levels <laughs> that I've already beat, Lord. But I delete them, just reminded, Lord, fill me. Fill me, not with the things of this world. Fill me with your love, your joy, and help me to set my attention on you and help me not to be running through opposition, through stress, through whatever may be coming in my life. So if God's whispering to you, take that seriously. Maybe dialogue about that in community. About six years later, Paul writes back to this church in Ephesus and reminds them who they are. He says, and you were, this is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he goes on to encourage them, and he says, remember who you are. Child of God, remember who you are. You've been bought with a price, you are a steward of your own soul. You are not your own. You are, you are the king of kings. And he's placed infinite value on you. So he says, remember who you are. Get these things out of your life that are hindering you from following me. And follow me. Because you know what? I am better than all those things. Even now, if God's laying something on your heart, Wrestle with him about that. Submit to him. Surrender. And then we get to the final scene, and we're going to see the final point of the, the outline is opposition. Paul sends some friends on. He's going to stay in the province of Asia for a while before he goes to Jerusalem. 
And we see one of the biggest scenes of opposition that we see in the New Testament. And so this picks up in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no God at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of this great Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped through the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So Demetrius is no fool. He sees what's going on. He sees the, the message of the way, which is the gospel is going forward. He's seeing people burn stuff that is valuable to them. And he's thinking, our, our trade's gonna tank. Our city is at risk. He says, we receive good income from this business and our idol, our goddess, is being challenged and defamed. And so it stirs him to action. And let's be, let's be clear here. This isn't a scene that set forth Demetrius versus Paul. This is a scene of the kingdom of the world opposed to God's kingdom. And that is the main foundation here. Paul's preaching a gospel that's not like what I heard growing up and many of you have heard over the years. You may see it on TV. It's like, man, your life is pretty good, but your life will be even better with Jesus. That's an incomplete gospel. The gospel is we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God will make you alive through Christ. We are not just sick, we're dead and we need new life. And the gospel, he says, Jesus came and bore the weight of the sin, the sin that you've committed. He took on him on the cross. And now he takes for those who believe his righteousness and places them. It's the great exchange. And so the people hear this and they're responding. And Demetrius responds as well. Everyone responds in one way or the other. And so when we hear Paul write this, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So as Paul and other believers are holding firmly, they are shining light into this dark world. And the darkness of the world is pushing back against it and says, we won't have anything to do with you. No, we are actually gonna oppose you strongly. And remember the world, flesh, Satan, this isn't Demetrius versus Paul. Because as we see, Demetrius calls the workers together. He doesn't really have to convince them very much before a mob forms. In verse 28, the crowd's response, more opposition. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, we'll say, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Listen to Paul's response. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. 
The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the scene is set, the archeological digging in Ephesus has unearthed the theater and it, it seems that it's, it's seated about 24,000 people. We don't know how big this mob is, but it, it's, it's a big, big, massive mob. The screaming was going on, there's confusion. The mob's looking for anyone to grab, so they grab a couple of Paul's friends and pull them in there because they're gonna do something about this. They're opposing this new message. And so the scene is set and, and the apostle Paul, this brave dude, he's like, man, I gotta go in there, I've gotta, I've gotta speak. But disciples hold him back and even high-ranking officials say, don't go, please don't go in there, Paul. Jewish leaders are there in the mob and they say, you know, basically they're reasoning together, hey, we don't want people to think that we are for the way, we're not for this, this Christianity. And so they're saying, let's make a defense, let's get Alexander to go speak up front. But he goes up front and the crowd sees like, hey, that guy's, he's a Jewish leader. He doesn't believe in Artemis either. So they start chanting. And so this two hours goes on, on and on. So you can feel the weight of that. Um, I'd like for us to stand in just a moment. We're gonna scream this for two hours and see what it's really like. You can do that on your own time if, if you'd like to. But let's look at the end of the scene. After two hours, the city clerk calms everyone down and he says this, City clerk quieted to the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither, neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. We see the people go on home. So he stands up and says, hey, Rome's going to come down hard on us. Don't do this. Take legal means. And so we get to the end of the scene, and as I read it this week and reflected on it, I, I'm a little let down by this ending. Uh, as, as one who loves stories, I love good movies. And so I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, okay, let's look to chapter 20, because there's going to be like this big influx, and it's Paul gathers his friends and says farewell and moves on. And if I were a movie producer and I didn't care about God's word, I'd say, hey, let's, let's do some tweaks here. Let's do some tweaks and make it a little more exciting. So Paul's being held back. And in this movie version, that's not accurate. Paul breaks forth. He finds a secret way to sneak in and he gets up in front of the crowd and they're screaming. He says, people, silence. And everybody hushes. And then he preaches the best gospel sermon ever. And people fall down. They repent. The whole city's saved. They're throwing parades. They're praising Jesus's name. That's not what happens, is it? It's not what happens at all. The Christian life is not up to us producing outcomes. And we see Paul obeying here. People are holding back. He submits and he goes on. And the truth is a lot of us have these preconceived notions and we've heard it as we've looked at Acts is that if we act a certain way, if we're faithful in a certain way, then certain outcomes are demanded upon God. 
the economic state of our, our, our country will get better. The schooling will get better. And, and these things may take place, but they may not. God's call is for God's people to be faithful, to be faithful, to shine his lights and leave the outcomes to him. Oswald Chambers said this, if we're devoted to the cause of humanity, and that's all we're devoted to, we will soon be crushed and brokenhearted. For we shall often meet with more ingratitude from others than we would from a dog. But if our motive is love for God, no ingratitude can hinder us from serving others. Our attitude has to be like Paul's. Lord, help me to be faithful. Lord, help me to be a light in the world. Lord, help me to to not demand certain outcomes from you. There are times where people will be saved. There are times where things will get better, but there are times where things will get worse. There are times where the crowds will dissipate and it'll seem like nothing occurred. This 2 Corinthians 1 has become a a very dear passage to me. We've talked about it as, as elders and as we think about it, I think verses eight and nine is in some ways become kind of a, a life passage for me. Paul writes about this just a year or two after this scene takes place in this province of Asia. And he's writing back to the Corinthian church and he says this, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. And look at this, Apostle Paul, the man, the carrier of the gospel, He says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. If you're facing opposition, if you feel in the depths, you're in good company. But look at the result. He says, but in fact, we expected to die. But as a result... As a result of this massive opposition, as a result of this persecution, as a result of all of these things taking place, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. May that be the outworking in my life. May that be the outworking of opposition in your life, that we could learn to stop relying on ourselves and rely on God alone What's his, what's his resume? Oh, he, nothing. He just created everything. He raises the dead. Massiveness of the universe, the intricacies of a flower. The one who sent Jesus, who lived the perfect life, died on the cross for you and for me. The one who says, keep in step with the spirit, walk in the spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. This is our calling to learn to rely on God more and more. What do you think success looks like? Now, reflecting this past week, I've, I've buried family members. As a pastor, I've buried the old and the young. I've seen conflict arise on every side. I've seen faithfulness on many fronts, and I've seen betrayal. Truth is, this is not our destination. The very name of this church, we are sojourners. We're strangers. This isn't our destination. This isn't our home. And think about where you may be today. Are you in the midst of external or internal voices screaming and it just seems like chaos? 
Maybe you're at the end of a victory and everything just seems to dissipate and it doesn't seem like anything's taken place. It's like, God, what was that for? And Jesus says, I've told you all these things so you won't fall away. Persevere. And my encouragement to you, my encouragement to myself here today is persevere. Hold fast, stand strong. Because the scriptures are clear. Just hear this verse. Peter writes, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. Something strange is happening to you. Don't think it's strange. But rejoice in as much as participating in the sufferings of Christ. That's the plan God has for you so that you may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. In the suffering, in the bitterness of life, I've also seen great joy. Personally, over the last 10 years as a pastor at Sojourn, I baptized over 100 people at Midtown, some here. I've heard people's lives change. I've seen them changed. Uh, even in the moment, I'm thinking about a young man named Sam who came to me after a sermon in Romans years ago, and he came with tears in his eyes. He says, man, I, I don't know Jesus. So he went up to my office, and he, he accepted Christ as his Savior. And I got to see Sam get involved in community. I got to perform his, his wedding. I got to perform his baptism first, but then he met a young lady, a Christian lady, got married, started having kids, became a community group leader and eventually a community group coach. He became a guy who would volunteer at, at Sojourn. And one day he got a call, hey, there's a guy on his deathbed. Can we send somebody? And he was freaked out. And he was like, I don't know. And he started looking for people, couldn't find anybody. He's like, I, I'll go. And he led that man to Jesus on his deathbed. And those are the stories I cling to. Those are stories where I say, God, you're at work. You have not forsaken your people. In the midst of opposition, you're doing amazing things in people's hearts and lives are being changed. So I remind you, Christian, persevere, persevere. In your notes, I have this quote from John Ortberg. It says this, there will be great pain and there will be great joy. In the end, joy wins. So if joy is not yet won, it is not yet the end. This life matters. What we do in this life matters. But don't be fooled. This is not our destination. And Jesus reminds us, the one who faced the most opposition this world has seen will ever see. He went head forth into death against Satan's sin and darkness. He persevered and he won the victory for me and you. And that's why we can sit here today and have peace. That's why we can declare, God, you're good all the time. So we can say, Lord, all I have is yours because you've given it to me. And he sets up a sacred symbol that we practice every week. And if we, if we do it uh, without thinking, it can just become commonplace, just like everything in this world. But God reminds us, I am for you. If I'm for you, who can be against you? What can separate you from my love? And Christ, on the same night that he warns his disciples, you're going to face much trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. He overcame for us. And he sets up this symbol. His body was broken for me and for you on the cross as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He drank, drank the cup to its dregs, the cup of suffering. He set up the new covenant, shedding of his blood, so that we could remember of what he's done, 
which gives us life today, which promises of a new day, of a new meal that we will sit where joy will be the end and it will be for every passing moment from then on. If you're a Christian here today, I invite you to come forward and break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits, and be reminded of this amazing, amazing thing God has done. Be reminded that our whole life is gonna be a transition of saying, Lord, I surrender this to you. Lord, I surrender this. And that's our posture. If you're not a Christian, the scriptures teach against you partaking in this. So don't do that, but we'd enjoy beyond measure, just dialoguing with you what it means to be a Christian and what it, what it looks like to follow Christ. As we'll sing and respond in just a moment, we got a couple new communion stations. It's not meant to throw you off. You'll still form the same lines, but just go to the open communion station and let's celebrate the fact that Christ has died for us and we have life. Let's pray together.